Hey, Srula Manderson, back at you again. It's the Sneeman Podcast. Yeah, sorry I haven't been around some personal issues, uh, but I won't get into those personal issues on this episode. I'll probably talk about it in the next episode because I just want to take my mind off things, you know, upload this episode. So, yeah, today's episode, um, it's about a YouTube reaction, right, about uh, how, what were white people thinking during apartheid like the basically a documentary i think it was made by some british journalist and you know they're interviewing white people and what they think about the situation in south africa during apartheid so the clip that i'm going to play now it's about um the mayor of Joburg during the 1960s as talking about uh how colored people you know mixed race people are an integral part of Joburg, but they're about to chase them out of Joburg. So they wanted to be all white, like literally. So it, it kind of puzzles me, like even in real life, right? Um, or like modern times, rather. Colored people or mixed race people, they think that they're more white than black. But white people consider them as black. <laughs> like to them, they're black. You get what I mean? So like we shouldn't, uh, you know, be having that kind of mindset, thinking that, if we are mixed race, we are more white. You are not white, you are black. Even on a census, most uh, mixed race people, they're white, black, or colored. You know, they're never white. <laughs> so, but anyways, uh, let's have a listen. Is that you learn to know Johannesburg's people such as you've never known them before. When the city is, uh, as I take it, it's going to be an all-white city, do you think it will lose some of its character? when the colored people move out eventually. Oh, I don't think this can ever be an all-white city. I think the non-whites are as much an integral part of Johannesburg as the whites. I don't think there's ever been uh, any serious uh, fork. <laughs> so, okay, they are part of Joburg, the integral part of Joburg, but why are you chasing them away? <laughs> you just want them to come to Joburg only to work, right? Like, so you want Joburg to be all white, basically. An all white city. But the last streets inhabited by the coloured people will soon be demolished under the new government law insisting coloured people live separately from white. They will have to move away from the city to places they have never known. They can come back into Johannesburg to work, but they must not live there. Development must be separate. That is apartheid. If they happen to be traders, that's their hard luck. Yet once in Johannesburg, it was possible for a few black and white people to mix, as the distinguished novelist Nadine Gordimer told me. People often think of Johannesburg as a very um, brash, money-grubbing, rather unpleasant place. It has this... Okay, so this lady is going to talk about Sophia Town. I've explained about this before on my other episodes that... At some point, uh, white and black people were intermingling. They were mixing and they were bustling and it was really nice. It was like the golden era of South African, of South Africa, basically. Because what was happening is that white, colored, uh, black, they were intermixing in Sophia Town and it was really nice. It was something really great, like the diversity. And I suppose that is one side of it. But during the 50s, and into the early 60s, it had really a rather unique 
character. South of the Sahara, never mind in South Africa. There was a kind of mixing across the color line here that really didn't exist anywhere else. There was nothing of the sort of, um, I've invited a black man to dinner, aren't I brave aspect of it at all. And firm friendships were made across the color line this way. As I say, it came really out of community of interest. It came because perhaps this is the only real city south of Cairo. And the Africans who um, came to town were born perhaps in Sapphire Town, um, were city people of several generations, worked as journalists or jazz musicians or whatever. And um, they were city people just as the white people were. So Johannesburg really... So yeah, basically this is how apartheid began. So they saw that oh damn, these people like each other. <laughs> this can happen because if these people actually intermingle and you know they have babies, they'll give birth to black. I mean black babies or mixed race babies or black according to white people rather. So they needed to cut that. So obviously, since white people were a small minority. If they intermingled with the black society, they would go out of extinction. Like through like three generations, uh, the babies that are going to come out will be clearly black people. So they knew this would be detriment to the white society. So they needed apartheid to actually survive. <laughs> Character, and it was a kind of um, foreshadowing of what an integrated society might be and how much it could enrich both sides if it were allowed. What became of all those Africans who were part of that life you're describing? Well, I'm afraid many of them, the uh, ones who were involved in, in politics, are either in exile or in prison because their political movements are banned. And um, the intellectuals generally became stultified by the color bar. Soweto is where the black Africans must live, a township 15 miles from Johannesburg. Its population is now almost as great as the white cities. It's impossible to get permission to film life on this dark side of the moon. Many white South Africans are proud of Soweto. They contrast it not with white Johannesburg, but with more primitive African communities of the north. The African, they claim, is well-educated. But education in Soweto seldom brings a job with a white man's status or wages. Yeah. <laughs> This is so crazy because um, there's this other lady, Helen Zela, from the DA, uh, South African Political Party. She was saying recently that the poor people in the Western Cape are better off than the poor people of the rest of South Africa, like poor black people. That's what she said. Like, <laughs> it's so crazy that... Even during this time, in the even during apartheid, that's what they actually thought. Like so, oh my, oh my God! <laughs> so now you realize how racist those people are. You get what I mean? So you would realize that they are really racist. Slowly, though, as African wages begin to rise, so do their expectations. Storekeepers appreciate that more prosperous customers are good for business. At a large apartment store in Johannesburg, there were many black as well as white shoppers. But I could see no black shop assistants. Yeah, but how much were the wages and how much were they increasing? <laughs> so we need to know. Because maybe they were paying like maybe uh, $1 per day. 
and now it's one dollar ten cents like how much of an increase is that we need to know the amount okay whether wages should be higher for africans was a question i put to the managing director of the ok bazaar stanley kern yes okay check out like you know what's surprising people were denying apartheid during apartheid so how do you expect people who are practicing anti-black racism to actually agree to doing that in the modern times? Which apartheid was very bad. Like, yeah, it was very bad, but they acted like it didn't even exist. They're acting like it's just people who are just biased and the law or the government is just following the protocol of the people. So you see, uh, white people are so racist. So we have to do what they want. We can't intermingle them. Like if they mix, they'll probably kill each other. So we can't mix these people. So <laughs> basically that's the thought process process they had about apartheid. And also helps them in their own standard of living and allows them to buy luxuries, which they haven't been able to in the past. So uh, we're all for it. In fact, we pioneered the increase in wages in our type of organization. I notice in your store here that no Africans are working at the counters. Is that because the whites refuse to work with them? Uh, yes, mainly. Uh, there is no reason why they can't work behind the counters. Other, There's no law against it. But there is this um, natural prejudice in this country which uh, you can't legislate for or against. You don't think you can legislate? I don't think you can, you can legislate for it, but it takes a long time before that legislation is accepted. You've seen that in other parts of the world. Oh, we can't stop apartheid because it will take a long time. <laughs> think about that for a sec. Like, even people during apartheid, they were like, oh, no, man, we're not the ones who, like, are doing this whole apartheid thing. It's the people, the people who hate each other. So it's not our fault for it. Like, it's not our fault. So, yeah. The gold mines. The workers offer their daily greetings to the white bosses. Man. Like, they're like trained like children. These are workers, but they're busy chanting like children. Oh my goodness. Gold mining, uranium and copper is still the main source of Johannesburg's wealth. It employs half a million people. The wages of the Africans who go thousands of feet into the ground are 11 shillings a day. In mine disasters in South Africa, the casualties are almost invariably black. And the you know what's the funny thing? Even to this day, miners are, mis are being mistreated. Like, there was a massacre very recently. Miners were massacred. Like, they were stri striking, protesting for high wages. And the government just issued um, a decree and they were massacred, most of them. So, like, you can see that these mines are not, <laughs> are not South African-owned. And people who own these mines, they don't really care about black people. In fact, there are black people who are benefiting from these mines. So, when the white people say, oh, dude, like, you have to do something to protect your interest and also our interest and they did what they had to do they just massacred them the the protest ended 
and the miners could see that if we don't stop protesting, they'll kill us all rather than increase our wages. That's how greedy these people are. It hasn't changed one bit. The fewer white faces. The Africans are migrants brought in by the companies, usually on nine-month contracts, so they're separated from their families. This prevents new urban communities growing up near the white. But the African seldom sees the gold he produces. It's white men who handle it when it's separated from the dross. Gold, being precious, is a white man's metal. For white workers in the industry... It's so precious. It's a white man's metal. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Such poetry. And 2,000 a year, and rents are cheap, often only £6 a month. White workers resist the promotion of Africans to skilled work. Gold bars have built the great mining and finance houses of Johannesburg. The famous businessmen of South Africa, the Menels and the Oppenheimers, have their headquarters here. Angloval, Anglo-American and the rest have a capital of hundreds of millions of pounds. Nearly all the industrial barons are English-speaking. Many are Jewish. Usually, they are hostile to apartheid, call themselves liberal. Yet for all their wealth and protestations, the nationalist government and policy remain unchanged. Imagine, these people were wealthy, they said they don't like apartheid, but still they didn't do anything about it. But obviously they were lying. They didn't like apartheid, it was the main thing that was benefiting them. Without apartheid, they wouldn't have taken the wealth so easily. So, they're lying. Shares at the stock exchange change hands more readily than does power. As foreign investment grows, attracted by raw materials, a growing market and cheap labor, so the stock exchange grows. In this masculine white society, the preoccupation is money. And outside, the world money buys can be insulated from the turbulent continent. In the white suburbs of Johannesburg, life is never less than comfortable sometimes spectacularly elegant. The average white income in Johannesburg may not enable you to live in quite this style, but it does enable you to lead quite an easy life. The very rich in South Africa live very much like the very rich elsewhere. They have an abundance of servants. What? Yeah, and funny enough, South Africa back then, it was like the place. It, Joburg was like one of the top cities. Like right now, Joburg is like, Man, so most people will be like blaming the black government. They'll be like, ah, oh, the government is doing one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Man, I don't really buy that. So, like, if they wanted to fix the government to be straight, uh, straightforward and people not to be corrupt, they'd be able to do that. But why are these people not being persecuted, the people who are really corrupt? Because at the end of the day, if the country is really corrupt, there should be someone who must do something, right? Can Jacob Zuma and the rest of Ramaphosa, all those people can do whatever they want? I, I don't believe so. Someone has to oversee that the country is actually doing well. So if these things are happening, they're letting them to happen. Who? You know who it is. Cute uneasiness about the future. Will the servants always be servants? In the rich suburbs, the fear of robbery and worse reflects a more profound unease. Yet the end... Yeah, I wanted to talk about this thing that the suburbs are actually more dangerous than Soweto or the townships. Because now, like, I want to make, like, an episode, like, after this one, I want to make an episode about that, that how suburbs are so dangerous than the townships, which is really crazy, really. You think that you are safe when you're in the suburbs, but Soweto is much safer. 
friend. Many women in Johannesburg grace their walls with the work of African painters. The artist may be in exile or jail, his work remains. It's in these suburbs that the few outspoken opponents of Prime Minister Vorster may still be heard, like the last Progressive Party MP, Mrs. Sussman. What kind of people support you? Well, I would say largely um, people of the upper middle class and the middle class, people who are enlightened, professional people, the educated people, the constituency I happen to represent consists largely of, of, of that type of person. Well, in a sense, you're the kind of conscience of the rich here. Well, I don't think any of the rich, you know, because we do have a, a wide cross-section of support in South Africa. It's not enormous in, in, in quantity, but uh, we do have people from all walks of life supporting us and people of both language groups, although largely we get support from the English-speaking uh, English group of South Africans. Does it strike you as strange that you... Yeah, like um, even during apartheid, there were white people who were against apartheid. Helen Sussman, like uh, this lady, was like very instrumental in uh, ending apartheid. There were white people who wanted it to end, who were actually active. So now, even today, these days, we might think that uh, there should be a divide amongst white people and black people. You know, black people can't get um, their liberation if they get assistance from the enemy, the white person. I don't think that's the case. Uh, for you to end racism, you have to make the other side realize that what they're doing is wrong. And obviously, you need other white people to actually advocate, to tell other white people, hey, what you're doing is actually wrong and we should stop doing this. Otherwise, we'll just be enemies. If you hate the other side and you don't even want to share that side of, uh, of you, like obviously at the end of the day, you'll end up hating each other and then you'll never even talk about these issues. So I think we do need white people to actually end the systematic white supremacy that we're experiencing right now. We can't do it alone. We can't do it at a divide. You can't end racism while you're not even having friends from the other side. You get what I mean? At the end of the day, you have to have friends and allies from the other side. Rich, powerful industrialists. And yet they have so little influence over the government. Yes, well, that's largely their own fault, I might say, because to a large extent, the English-speaking group has opted out of politics in South Africa. They've left politics to the Afrikaans-speaking people, and therefore they play very little part in the, so far in the political development of South Africa. They have no lobbies, for instance, of any real importance. I suppose the big mining houses would be naturally consulted on any change in mine, mining law and so on, but, but certainly on the racial aspect, they've got very little influence, because all of them would like complete development on the economic economic front without any regard to the um, labor situation uh, racially, for instance. They'd like to use the skills of all the non-whites, which they're not able to do under present laws. Is it fair to say that you have here a rich industrial community that says it's liberal against apartheid, which has helped to produce an illiberal society by their inactivity? But they are, in a sense, well, very rarely responsible. Well, to some extent, that is true, because people who do nothing are responsible, I believe, for situations that have been allowed to develop simply by, by their own inaction. But on the other hand, the fact that... Yeah, she said it perfectly. Like, people who say they're not racist, it's not enough. You need to be anti-racist. You know, you can't say, no, oh, no, like, I'm not racist. That's it. And, you know, you'll overlook all the white people who are doing all the injustice because you'll be saying that, no, I'm not racist. So 
you know, there's nothing <laughs> I can do further than that. So you have to be anti-racist because if myself as a black person were to witness a racist situation, I would talk about it or even intervene if I can. But a white person, if they're saying that I'm not racist, that's it, and they're not anti-racist, if they experience such a situation, they won't even do anything. You see, they'll be like, oh, I'm not racist, so like, whatever. Like, they'll just ignore the whole situation. So you have to be anti-racist as well. You can't just be saying, I'm not racist, because there's no impact on society. You'll be involved in the, you are involved in the system itself. So how can you say you're not anti-racist while you're actually benefiting from the system? Economically, by these particular people, means that the, the, the non-whites have been urbanized, they've been skills and they have entered the economic field and have developed their own um, purchasing power which is a very important factor today and as I say goes contrary to the political uh, aims and goals of the government which is as you know is, is are, the, the goals are based on separate development which I for one and my party certainly does not believe is in any way the um, alternative policy which can work we think it's quite impossible it does look as if the industrialists and the rich are getting the benefits of being apparently liberal and opposed to apartheid and yet having cheap labor at the same time. Yes, I think that, I think that, is, that is fair comment. I think it is fair comment. And I, I see no reason why the industrialists, in fact, should not improve the living conditions of their workers. Yeah, so it's that whole thing, oh, you're saying you're liberal, but what are you actually doing to actually improve the lives of black people? Because some of the liberals back then will be saying that they're liberal, but at the end of the day, they're having servants and they're having cheap labor. So it's kind of contradictory. They should set the lead. There should be a minimum wage, below which no employer should be permitted uh, to employ labor. There are, of course, minimum wages for certain occupations, uh, but not enough. And of course, the Africans don't have the benefit of collective bargaining, which means their position is very weak vis-a-vis -vis the other working uh, groups in this country, coloreds, Indians and whites, and they always, it seems to me, seem to be the people who pay for keeping down costs of production and who are, are I think, jeopardized as a result of this, certainly by their standards of living being far too low. Many of the people who run industry here in Johannesburg, while they talk to one in private, are very nervous, indeed will not talk in public. I mean, what exactly is it they're afraid of? Well, of course, the government will great power in this country today. It's the handerator of con concessions and of permits and of import permits and so on. And people are nervous, you know, there's a tendency. I don't like this whole thing of uh, blaming the government. Someone once said, the government is the people. You can't blame the government. Like if today as the people we don't want certain things, we will rise up and protest and will make the government do whatever we want them to do. Like there are many situations where the government was forced to actually do certain things. I mean, like, okay, except in America, because right? <laughs> there were protests, Black Lives Matter protests, and uh, nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing. In fact, uh, the president is actually refunding and uh, giving the police more money. So like nothing happened. So, but anyways, if we want change, we actually need to go out there as the people. The people are more powerful than the government. You can ask uh, the the French, <laughs> the French Revolution. So, um, the French Revolution, you know, they took down the government. And that's also what happens to liberate Haiti. But anyways, 
the people can actually do it if you actually want to do it. The government is, uh, you know, the public servants, as you know, they're not getting paid crazy money. Politicians are not actually getting paid that much, you know, but they're, you know, corrupt, so they get to have more money than they should. But anyways. In such complete control as this one is, after all, it has a two-thirds majority in the lower house today, and it's very difficult for, for businessmen to run the risk of bucking the powers that be. I think they ought to, of course. I think they'd find it very beneficial, and I think they'd find the results quite surprisingly um, easier than they had thought. It's women, too, who created the Black Sash Movement, a small organization to defend the old South African constitution before the nationalist government began removing its guarantees of freedom. The Black Sash women are not allowed to express political opinions to visitors, or their movement will be banned. It's better. The boss will definitely give you a job. He wants to keep you. You see, like, it's so crazy that white people were actually fighting for black people's liberation, but they were not willing to risk it all. So they were just... Uh, only allowed to do what the government allowed them to do. Because if they were really serious about fighting for black people, they would actually go to jail for black people. So, like, what's the point of actually abiding by the same laws of the oppressive government and you're saying that you are fighting against that government, but you're abiding the laws? Like, it doesn't even make sense. (laughs) You have to break the rules to actually uh, free those people. So these protests were, like, maybe middle-class white people who were just bored, man. They'd be like, ah, let's actually fight for a movement. But that, that move, movement is restricted. So it does, it's not even doing much. What they can do is describe their work in helping Africans suffering at the hands of the police. They have more and more cases of Africans being endorsed out, that is, expelled from their homes because papers have been lost or are not in order. Imagine being so restricted from your own land. They're telling you where to go, what to do. You can't go back to your home. So what is this woman supposed to do? Because this woman, she actually doesn't have any paperwork to certify that she's as opposed to live in Joburg, but also in Port Elizabeth, where she's from, she hasn't been there in two years. So where is she supposed to go? <laughs> she has a child, but they want her to go back. I mean, like, this is, like, really bad. And um, it's so sad that they are saying that, ah, oh, you must just forgive and forget. Ah, oh, man, no, apartheid, that was, like, 30 years ago. Ah, oh, let's just forget about... How can you forget about this? How? Such trauma. Like, these people are still alive. This lady is probably still alive. Man. No rights anywhere now. Uh, uh, When she goes to, if she comes from the prescribed area 
of Port Elizabeth, she will not be allowed to remain. She has Port no Elizabeth. rights anywhere. Well, so will she be then separated from her family? Yes, I'm afraid so. But she will take the baby with her. I'm afraid uh, the baby won't be able to stay here without its mother. So the baby will lose its rights in Johannesburg as well. The way she talks so candidly about this, oh my God. <laughs> it's like she doesn't even care. Like she's like, oh, she lost her rights. Oh, okay. Like, okay, if you were to see the image of this woman, like she, she looks like a typical white supremacist woman. Like, you know, those grannies who are really racist. <laughs> she, she just looks like the typical racist uh, white woman. This polo club outside Johannesburg is one of the few working-class polo clubs in the world, as they like to say. Like all sport in South Africa, polo is segregated. The Africans have no chance of a chucker. English polo clubs have visited this ground recently. They would not have been able to play had they brought a Maharaja or two with them. And uh, yeah, talking about sports, like I remember like when we were growing up, um, we would hear stories that how brilliant uh, our soccer players were. Like, they used to thrash white teams left, right, and center. <laughs> like, African players were really good. Like, they really played beautiful football. Like, even now, I think there's a conspiracy that, um, you know, black sports, anything that has to do with black excellence is being deprived, you know, of, uh, you know, soaring or rather uh, being recognized around the world. So, for example, the choir, we no longer have choir tournaments. Like, black, <laughs> you, you know how black people can sing. Like, so black people will dominate the choir tournaments. Sports and athletics, yeah, here and there, but it's not really taken seriously. I mean, white people dominate us like crazy because they take sports very seriously. Even soccer, soccer in schools is no longer being played. So, Generally, soccer is not being developed in South Africa. The team that we had in South Africa back um, in the late 1990s are not there anymore. Like the, our soccer team is like a laughing stock. All black sports are very bad. Like <laughs> the teams are very horrible. But here's the kicker: the rugby team is one of the top teams in the world. They recently won the World Cup. Our cricket team is also very good. Why is that? What could be the reasoning of, oh, maybe our sports directors are really corrupt, so they love money so much, they can't even, oh my God. I don't even want to get into that. I don't want to even debate that. But anyways, here we go. <laughs> here, there is a very different view of society from that of Helen Sussman and Nadine Gordmer. Among other things women members told me was that the divorce rate in white Johannesburg was the highest outside California. Why? Because the women have such an easy life. Very easy life. I mean, they, if they don't go out to business, um, they've got more time on their hands to get into more mischief, which you must admit is lots of fun. It all depends how you look at it. And this then in turn leads to the divorce. Oh, I think so. So they have competitions, you know. <laughs> yeah, so basically the women in South Africa are having such an easy life. The husband can go to work and they're having so much money, so much servants. 
they're living so simple they end up cheating like because they're bored <laughs> that's how perfect life was during apartheid that's why so many white people are like oh life was easier back then and there are a lot of white people they wish apartheid would come back like i and i don't blame them <laughs> they were living the life on the backs of white of black people they were living the perfect lives what do you mean by competition? Well, you know, how many husbands they can sort of uh, go out with you. Collect. I've got to be careful with my wording. <laughs> what is it you like about life here? I love the country I was born in. I like the uh, way of life. We have an easy living. It's a healthy climate for children and for ourselves. And it's just, I love it. But no problems. Oh, I have my problems. Certainly I do. You're saying, is life easy for women in general? Yes, very. If you wish to make it so. What makes it so easy? Well, I think our husbands spoil us, the majority of women. And uh, we grow up in an easy way. Uh, we never have to do anything for ourselves. This is talking on an average home, of course. You get the poorer home where... Or you get... Uh, immigrants and people that refuse to have servants but if you grow up in an average home where you do your own work you have servants to do your work i mean you're taught the uh yo man like these people were living their life i don't think even white people in america lived this well like <laughs> they lived the perfect life i mean like this was very nice they didn't even have to do anything they, they just woke up and went to work came back bathed we woke up like the simplest life you can ever imagine paradise housekeeping and to keep your bedroom tidy and so on but if you feel like something being washed it's given to the servant to wash you never have it's an easy life once you've trained your servants then they work for you and you don't have to do the work yourself and i think most once you've trained them south africans are very lazy i'm one i've taken that too you go out to work, you come home, and everything's ready for you. You get up in the morning, you don't have to do a thing. But as Cynthia says, you have to train yourselves, and that is quite a business to train them. The poignant thing here is that um, the easy life is on the white side of the colour bar, and the hard life, with very few exceptions, is on the dark side. And if um, coloured or African people do, um, by some good fortune uh, become money become wealthy there's a great limit on what they can do with their wealth they can't move to um, a beautiful part of town just because they like the view there they have to continue to live in a segregated suburb they really haven't any choice in this matter at all and every white person who um, becomes money automatically expects to be able to live where he chooses and as he pleases. Um, the same thing with um, other pleasures. Um, to go and stay in a decent hotel. Yeah, someone, uh, they always tell black people, okay, black people, you're not oppressed, you got so much, um, you have a chance at getting wealth, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, we are not equal to white people. At the end of the day, we might fool over ourselves thinking that we are equal to white people. The law in many countries especially in the u.s i'll talk on the side of america especially because white people are a majority 
Whereas in South Africa, it's a lot easier to get justice because uh, black people are the majority. If maybe a case is unfair, it's way easier for them to protest and you know make it make the law as fair as possible. Rather than in America, when you have the media itself, even though the South African media is run by you know white people or white supremacists, rather. <laughs> So what can you actually do to actually pass your message and actually tell your people that, okay, this is how we feel? Because right now, anything that you can uh, talk about, you can only talk about it on Twitter. And most black people are not on Twitter. They can never really hear your message. You get what I mean? So at the moment, unfortunately, we are not really equal. White people are still doing way better than black people, even though they deny it. We all know this is true. Most of uh, black people, even though we can be successful, but you still have your parents to take care of. Your parents were not doing well. They grew up during apartheid. So you need to take care of them. You need to take care of the house. You need to, you know, make some improvements in the house that your parents couldn't do. Now, obviously, that, is, that stifles your progress. Now, you won't be able to actually live the life that you would have lived if your parents were actually doing very well. In fact, they could even... Uh, they could have helped you in many ways for you to progress much quicker. If maybe in your family they had a car, you would never have been late for certain interviews. You get what I mean? So, but anyways, yeah, man, that's the episode today. I hope you really learned something from this. <laughs> Apartheid was not nice, but anyways, we've passed through that. Even though, even now, we have uh, a lot of challenges. They are way better than... Uh, what would we would have gotten during apartheid, right? So anyways, what can we say? We can't really complain a lot. Yeah, but it's the episode today. It's the name and podcast. For now, shop shop.